week. In many ways, I, if you've been a part, I know not everybody here was with us all week, but if you were, then I think you, you would agree that in, in so many ways we feel like we've been on holy ground. And it's been intimidating to offer a closing word. How can I possibly offer a uh, fitting conclusion to what God has done among us? And what passage could possibly uh, capture this theme of sacred eros? The one I thought of, and I trust is from the Lord, is this erotic exchange between this woman and Jesus. It may not seem erotic, but it is. I want to show us why this morning. And I'm going to frame it in just two ways. We're going to look at the bounty of her love and the beauty of her love. Let's start with the bounty in verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him. And before we even get to what she does, you need to know that her very presence in this story is a bit of a scandal. Matthew tells us in verse 7 that Jesus is reclining at table for dinner, and culturally speaking, that is a time completely off limits to women except to serve the men while they feasted together. And out of nowhere, this woman barges in. I can assure you that at that moment, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. It's kind of like, have you noticed... um, most of these rom-com movies tend to conclude with kind of an awkward moment where uh, someone breaks a cultural norm and just embarrasses themselves, just makes a fool out of themselves to prove how much they love the other. That's, that's the feeling here. She just kind of barges in, and it's awkward, and it's tense. And then she actually, what she actually does is even crazier. A woman came up to him with the alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. We know from the other gospel accounts that this ointment was pure nard. Nard was the finest oil of the day, which is why Matthew notes that it is an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. How costly are we talking here? An alabaster flask of nard was worth around 300 denarii. In first century Rome, a typical salary was about one denarius per day. So we're talking about an entire year's salary in this flask. Now, it would have been possible for someone like her to save enough to purchase something like that. So this is probably, commentators think, probably a family heirloom. This is an inheritance passed down. So even more than how much it costs and how much it's worth, it also has the priceless tag of being the family inheritance. And so she barges in, creates an anxious moment of awkward silence. What's she doing here? And more importantly, what's she here to do? She walks up to Jesus and doesn't anoint him with oil as is custom. You anoint my head with oil. What that looked like typically was a little dab of oil on the forehead, or sometimes pouring out some oil on the head, just a little bit. That alone would have been a tremendous act of adoration in itself. But no, she breaks her family heirloom and dumps the entire treasure over his head. This is insane, which explains the response in verse 8. 
When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, admit it. Part of you thinks they do have a pretty good point here. Look, if you want to give your inheritance to Jesus, that's great. That's beautiful, in fact. But don't be so reckless, right? Sell it. Give it to the poor. Don't dump it on his head. What could possibly lead her to do something that seems so reckless? Only love. Specifically, someone who is in love. The title of my sermon is Intentional. I didn't title it Love for Jesus. I titled it In Love with Jesus. In love is the way we speak of the erotic. By the way, just if you haven't been attending our conference, this sermon is going to sound really, really weird. Um, go back and listen, and it will make more sense. But to those who were in attendance, you understand what I'm speaking of here. Remember the different talks that we talked about um, this week? Consider for the, the different loves we spoke of. Uh, consider, for example, filio, love, love of between friends. I say to Mark all the time, I love you, man. But if I added one word to that sentence, it would completely change the sentence. Mark, I'm in love with you. Now we've got a problem on our hands. (laughs) That one word means everything. Well, I like buying gifts for Mark. I've spent some money on him over the years, but all that I have belongs to the erotic. All my money, my possessions, the Apostle Paul says my very body belongs to Abby. Well, this is a woman who takes all that she has, her inheritance, and she pours it out on Jesus. She is in love with Jesus. Only erotic love can cause someone to take their greatest treasure their most valuable possession, and foolishly spill it out like it's nothing. This isn't duty. This is delight. This isn't obligation. This is adoration. This isn't religion. This is rapture. And unless you are likewise in love with who she is in love with, then you will never understand what she is doing here. This will not make sense to anyone who is not in love with Jesus. Even if you are devoutly religious, even devoutly religious in the Christian tradition, you won't understand this moment. Because religion does not view God through the lens of love. Religion is always pragmatic. What are you doing? Sell the oil. Do something religious with it. Help the poor. That's how religious talks. But those in love with Jesus see it differently. We know exactly what's going on in her. In fact, we long for the same opportunity to recklessly lavish our love upon our Savior. This is very unique, religiously speaking. Do you understand how weird our conference was when you think about it? I could just imagine someone from another religion listening in on a discussion about an eternal exchange of rapturous love that God has forever enjoyed in himself, experienced in the erotic exchange of love when male and female come together in a one flesh union. 
Somebody hears that and they say, what are you all talking about? Have you lost your minds? And certainly they would call it irreverent. But what can I say? Something strange happens to us who choose to follow Jesus. We fall in love. I have a book for everyone, especially those who attended the conference, to purchase. It's called Late Have I Loved Thee, Selected Writings from St. Augustine on Love. It's a great devotional book. Augustine is obviously uh, known for many important things in the, not just the Christian tradition, really Western civilization tradition. But one thing unique about Augustine is his language of love. And so this book is excerpts of his writings on love. You see, before his conversion, Augustine lived a very promiscuous life, moving from lover to lover to lover, only to discover the emptiness of that pursuit. But that emptiness led him to the banquet of Jesus. And when you read Augustine, you will see that far from suppressing the erotic he once indulged, it would seem that he finally found the rightful end of eroticism. In Jesus, the erotic within him doesn't go away. It finds its proper order. And his only regret is that he hadn't discovered this sooner. Thus, late hath I loved thee. Let me show you what I mean. Here's where that quote comes from. Late have I loved thee. O beauty ever ancient, ever new, late have I loved thee. You were within me, but I was outside. And it was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. But you called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness, you flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you. Now I hunger and thirst more. You touched me, and now I burn for you. St. Augustine. Here's another section where he describes his conversion. You pierced my heart and I fell in love with you. What do I love when I love my God? A touch, a voice, a fragrance, an embrace which is for my inmost self. Something that is not limited by space. Something not snatched away from me by passing time. Something I may savor undiminished. A union from which nothing can tear me away. This is what I love when I love my God. My goodness. Is he talking about his God or his lover? And the answer is yes. He is like this woman pouring out her treasure on the object of her delight. He is like David when he bursts out in Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, I love you. It's like the psalmist who cries, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Dare I say, he is like the lovers in Song of Solomon. I'm not going to read that again, don't worry. But I will reinforce what I said at the conference, that's in your Bible, not as an appendage to Scripture's story, but as an integral part of the story. Yes, Jesus is the true and better Abraham, the true and better Moses, the true and better David. And yes, Jesus is the true and better Solomon, the strong bridegroom to his bride, the church, indeed the lover of our souls. That's what's going on here. This bountiful act is a testimony to the bounty of her love for Jesus. She can't 
help herself because she is in love. And as everyone who is in love knows, love will make you do crazy things. But more fascinating to me when I look at this passage is how Jesus responds to her love. Jesus does not shy away in the least from the bounty of her love. He doesn't see her act as wasteful. He calls it beautiful. Let's look now at the beauty of her love. Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? Jesus is mad at their seemingly rational response. He comes to her defense as if to say, leave my girl alone. And then he uses language that is strange for Jesus. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. He calls it beautiful, what she has done to him. Not good, not appropriate, not thoughtful. He calls it beautiful. He is delighting in this woman, admiring her, finding beauty in her bounty of love. And then in verse 11, he says something that is really strange for Jesus. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now listen, I think we can all agree that Jesus loves the poor. It would be easy to make the case that he loves the poor most of all. It's literally what he is known for, both inside and outside Christianity. And yet, here he seems almost callous to the poor. The poor are always going to be around. Don't worry about them. If you want to help them, you can do that anytime. But I'm here now. On the surface, it seems callous, maybe even arrogant. He believes that oil carelessly poured out over his head is a greater act than using the fortune to provide for the poor. That doesn't seem, doesn't just seem arrogant. That almost seems immoral. Didn't Jesus himself command us to care for the poor? What else? Love your neighbor, talk Jesus, and specifically love our poor neighbors. Well, he would say, yeah, I said that, but I call that the second greatest commandment. This this is one, there is one and only one commandment greater, one love that is higher. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus sees this commandment fulfilled in this woman's act. Again, this is her family inheritance. Well, imagine your response. If you left your entire family inheritance to our church to fund our justice and mercy efforts among the poor, and we took it and we used it to just throw a lavish party for the church. We wouldn't, by the way, if you want to leave your inheritance to us. We will be very responsible with your fortune. But the point is that if Jesus were to show up, Now the responsible thing to do would be to throw a lavish feast for Jesus. That's the message here. In placing himself above care for the poor, he has placed himself as the highest importance. Every religion, every ethical structure and perspective out there would agree that care for the poor is of ultimate importance. There's disagreement about the best way to do that, but everyone agrees on this. Caring about, caring for the least is the highest virtue, except for Jesus. Jesus sees one thing as more important than love for the poor, and it is love for him. And the point is that if we should love Jesus more than we should love even the poor, 
then what should we not love Jesus more than? The answer is nothing. You are to love Jesus more than your career. You are to love Jesus more than your money. You are to love Jesus more than your comfort. You are to love Jesus more than any form of entertainment or pleasure this world has to offer. You are to love Jesus more than your children, your grandchildren. And yes, in light of our conference, you are to love Jesus more than your spouse. As our single friends so nobly testify to us, there will be no marriage or giving of marriage in the resurrection that is to come, for we will all be married to Jesus as his bride. The entire purpose of your existence is to fall in love with Jesus. Which now presents us with a problem. Anytime you get into the arena of love, things get more complicated. Because our love is not something we can control. Our love controls us. If Jesus demanded our obedience, this is something we could produce for him. Though flawed, we can work on it. If Jesus said, you must follow these religious rules, this is something we could do on our own. Jesus is not demanding that. He is demanding our love here, and this is something you can't self-produce. Love is not manufactured. Love is captured. Well, we love because he first loved us. The Savior who demands our love is the Savior who captures our love with his. The story takes a cryptic turn in verse 12, doesn't it? In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. What is that about? And that day the dead were covered with perfumes and oils before their burial to mask the smell of decay. And Jesus says that her oil is anointing his body for his burial. This story takes place during the week of his passion. His cross is near, which means he is very close to capturing our love with his. As is always the case, Jesus is the story behind the story here. Love will make you do crazy things. Indeed, love made God do something really crazy. God took what was most precious to him, his only begotten son, and broke him and spilled his blood. And it would be very easy to say to God what was said to this woman in our passage, what a waste. But God says you wouldn't see it that way if you understood my love. He can't help himself. He's too in love. He's too in love with you. It's been a heavy week. We've been discussing that which is most personal, most vulnerable to every single one of us. I'm sure you have thought about your uh, sexual regrets, pain, and shame more than you have in a long time. I'm sure sexual addictions, pornography addictions are troubling you deeper than they ever have. I'm sure you're lamenting the disorder of your sexual attractions like never before. I'm sure spouses are facing stuff they haven't faced perhaps ever. Emptiness of marriage where the erotic is barely hanging on. I'm sure if you are single, you're longing in deeper ways than you ever have before. Perhaps feel unlovable because nobody has chosen you yet to love you with the erotic I'm going to close this out by saying to you what Jesus wants to say to you, and it's that he loves you. It's 
It's an honor as a minister in his name. By the authority of his word to proclaim that Jesus is in love with you. And he's gotten crazy to prove it. Death by crucifixion is a painful way to die. It was developed by the Romans as a cruel form of capital punishment where its victims slowly over hours, in some cases days, slowly suffocate to death. And what kills you is weight. What kills you is the weight. Can't keep holding yourself up. And so you slowly collapse until you can't breathe anymore. This, I fear, is how many of us feel in exploring our sexuality. Nothing is heavier than the weight of sexual shame. I want to remove that weight from you. I can't, but Jesus can. Every single sexual failure, from the big ones you can't forget to the smallest ones you don't notice. Every disordered lust, lust for the same sex, lust for someone you're not married to, lust for pornographic images, every single disordered lust, all of it, my friends, was upon the shoulders of our crucified lover. And he suffocated under it. Because he couldn't help himself. He's too in love. There's no possible way the uh, scent from an entire flask of nard poured out on his head would go away in a week. When he was hanging, he smelled a perfume. thought of her sustained him as he suffocated. The thought of you sustained him as he suffocated. And the thought that sustained him was, I would rather this be me than my bride. Now, we love because he first loved us. Well, he has loved us. Don't you love him? Has he not won you over? Are you not in love with Jesus Christ? Well, that sacred eros for Jesus is quite literally the entire point of this entire story of love. Let me pray. Where as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so feed us with this proclamation of your love. You've loved first, Lord. And now it is an honor to say to you, we love you. I pray as you watch those you died for walk down this aisle, you would see it as a bride walking down an aisle in love with you, to feast with you. Fill us with your love, O God. Overwhelm us with your love that it might capture our love. And we just want to say, Jesus, we love you. We love you. And we pray in your name. Amen.